The legacy of theoretical physicist Abdus Salam is controversial in his home country Pakistan. Remembered by some as a Nobel Prize winning scientist and pioneer of Pakistan's nuclear program, Salam was also rejected for being an Ahmadi Muslim, a persecuted religious minority in Pakistan. In our latest episode of Himal Interviews, we spoke to filmmaker Zakir Tawer, who joined us from Karachi. Along with his friend Omar Vandal, Tawer co-produced a recent feature-length documentary on Abdus Salam and his legacy in science and politics. In this interview, he spoke to our editor Anuhita Majumdar on why the documentary cannot be screened in Pakistan, Salam's international fame and domestic rejection, and the challenges of getting archival footage from Tennessee to Seoul and everywhere in between. Zakir Thawe, thank you for joining us on the Himal South Asian podcast from Karachi. You're the producer of the documentary Salam on the Pakistani physicist Abdus Salam. And we were really fortunate that we managed to see it here in Colombo, where it was screened at the Amnesty's Ask for Rights Festival. This documentary can't be viewed easily in Pakistan. Why is it so controversial there? Hi, thank you for having me. It's controversial in Pakistan because the religious community to which Salam belonged, uh, which is the Ahmadi community, was declared heretical by an act of parliament in 1974 in Pakistan. So after which this community has been, well, even before, but after which this community has been more rampantly persecuted in Pakistan and members of it are vilified. And so that's the reason why a film on an Ahmadi, however illustrious, is uh, controversial in Pakistan. What also compounds the fact that Salam was the first Muslim to have won the Nobel Prize. And in Pakistan, you can't call him a Muslim. So much so that the word Muslim has been whitened out from his epitaph, uh, which now reads the first Nobel laureate, which obviously isn't true. So have you been able to show it at all in Pakistan? Well, no broadcaster will carry it. In fact, two previous attempts to document Salam's life were sabotaged. So not to the general public. We haven't been able to submit it to any festivals here because the criteria for this year was films completed before a certain date, which we didn't match. But if in principle we were to submit it to film festivals, high chances the film would not be accepted. It would be deemed too controversial to show here. So not to the general public. We have not been able to show. But people have watched it in private settings. We have been able to show it, you know, in closed door settings to a group of friends. But these are, you know, hand-picked group of cherry-picked friends. It's it's, it's, uh, preaching to the choir. The film is really poignant and it uh, explores this dichotomy between the international public acclaim that Salam received and uh, the rejection of him and his faith within Pakistan. And... uh, You are, as we said, the producer of the documentary, yet the term producer seems inadequate to describe your involvement with the making of this film. Uh, The Salam was 14 years in the making and clearly a labor of love for you. Can you tell us something about this process? Sure. So my fellow producer and uh, dear friend Omar Vandal and I met 
in college in the U.S. And despite being aspiring science students from Pakistan, we did not know much about Salam. And we discovered Salam only after we read his obituary in the New York Times in the U.S. And what became apparent immediately was the story had been kept from us. And if the likes of ourselves, who were rather well-informed, intellectually curious, if we may say so ourselves, did not know about Salam, you know, the rest of Pakistan wouldn't have access to his very inspirational story either. And so that's what motivated us initially to at least discover the power that the story had. Uh, You know, the story of Ramanujan has inspired generations of Indian mathematicians and computer scientists. Uh, Marie Curie's story inspired a whole generation of women to pursue science, which was then considered a male-dominated profession. Salam's story had pretty much the same potential, but remained largely untold. So that motivated us to tell the story. We reconvened in New York in 2004, and I think in a post-9-11 climate, felt it would be relevant to tell the story of someone from our own culture, uh, the story of an illustrious Muslim. And so that's what motivated us. Uh, We spent 14 years researching it before we brought on or 12 years researching it and developing it before you brought on a director-editor. And we got pretty obsessed with Salam and started uncovering everything that was on him. So when it came time to recruit someone to edit and direct the story, we had every single piece of archive on Salam. Anytime Salam spoke and a recording was on, we pretty much had it. We scoured the world's libraries everywhere from Multan, Pakistan to Seoul, South Korea, and everywhere in between. So we also did the research and you know, develop the framework for the idea. But I think producers is pretty much an all-encompassing term. But yes, we're also sort of listed in the end credits as, as researchers of this documentary. Well, it sounds like what you've uncovered can probably lead to several films on the subject. How were you able to access the incredible footage that you do use in the documentary? Oh, it was extremely difficult. In Pakistan, there's no proper tradition uh, of preserving archives. So it just meant asking people for help, finding out who potentially in the U.S. could have had recordings of Pakistani archives. The one thing that occurred to us while we were researching is that catalogers or loggers in the West might have misspelled Abdul Salam because it was an unfamiliar name. So some of the most interesting content we ended up with, we found because because we even googled Adbus Salam, that's A-D-B-U-S, uh, you know, deeming it a common misspelling, and even A-B-U-S Salam. Uh, we, we, you know, we just got excess obsessive and just uh, looked in all directions, looked everywhere, uh, searched high and low, recruited a whole number of people to help with the project. And of course, progressives at universities across the U.S. and the U.K. who had access to libraries and, and these great archives were also sort of, you know, very willing to help. And did a considerable portion of the footage come from Pakistan itself? Well, a considerable portion of the archives is from Pakistan, but it didn't really come from there. So places like the Associated Press had content from Pakistan. And once copyright owners in Pakistan were willing to give us permission to use their content, it became easy to, or relatively easy, to get the content from elsewhere. Vanderbilt University, for example, was recording TV news channels in the U.S., from the 60s and they have it cataloged beautifully and you could 
actually query very specifically for content and then sort of order their the content in electronic format on a DVD or on a USB drive. There was a lot of PTV content used in these clips. And once PTV gave permission to us to use this content, we ended up getting it from for an access fee from the various US networks to use PTV content, which is a good thing because it means the content is, or at least some of it, uh, is preserved somewhere. Well, I think it's your obsession which probably overcame all these various hurdles that you're describing or the film may not ever have been made as you were saying uh, earlier attempts to make it were sabotaged. It's ironic that you had to go outside Pakistan to access all this footage because even within Pakistan, I mean, Abdus Salam has been awarded with the nation's honors while being rejected at the same time. Uh, your film, of course, is a biopic of the famous physicist, but at the same time, it's an extremely political film which uh, uncovers how this one community is being treated by the state and by groups within uh, Pakistan. Uh, one thing which I think came as a surprise to many of us who were at the screening of the film was the Q&A session in which uh, we heard that even when you apply for a Pakistani passport, uh, you have to actually declare that you think that the Ahmadi community is not a real Muslim community. Yes, that's very sad, actually. That was military dictator Ziaul Haq's doing. He introduced what's called Ordinance 20 in 1984, which criminalized Ahmadis posing as Muslims. And uh, one, yes, one can't get a passport in Pakistan as a Muslim unless you're willing to sign a declaration that uh, you are a Muslim and deem uh, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, who's the founder of the Ahmadi community, an imposter prophet. So yes, it's it's sad. What's interesting is in 1954, where when in Pakistan, where there were disturbances in Lahore, and there was an earlier attempt to declare the Ahmadis non-Muslims, these two judges, Munir and Ayani were part of a commission to look into the disturbances of Lahore. And they asked 10 religious scholars to define the minimum criteria one had to meet to be a Muslim. The responses were wildly divergent. And if you looked at the definition of any one Islamic scholar, only that person would qualify as a Muslim and everyone else would be a kafir. So it's interesting how when the definition is inherently divergent and ambiguous and nebular, there's this attempt now to establish oneself as a Muslim by negating another as not Muslim. Zakir, you were mentioning the ordinance which is uh, discriminatory against the sect of Muslims. And of course, recently in the news, we have seen the blasphemy law and uh, how people have re responded to it. I think not just in Pakistan, but all over large parts of South Asia, India included, Violence from extremist nationalists protected directly or indirectly by the state has been on the increase, targeting those who are speaking out and challenging extremism. Documentaries such as yours also put its makers at risk. This must be something that you have considered. Well, we got into it knowing that two prior documentaries uh, on Salam had been sabotaged. And we were also very mindful of the risks so we stayed under the radar, at least initially, and we haven't, we hadn't really come out uh, with the film until now. 
it had to be made and i think as science students in the west who had to go to the west to discover salam we felt behooved to tell the story and we started off when we were 14 years younger and i think as a young idealist when you discover that the state has kept a story from you your your knee jerk your immediate reaction is to want to tell it yourself we also hope uh, that our audiences realize just what all pakistan has lost out on the shape of physics or even science in pakistan would have been very different had salam been allowed to affect or influence the direction of science here uh, what's also sad is that what pakistan lost out in physics vis-a-vis salam it recently lost out in economics vis-a-vis this other illustrious amadi from pakistan kolatif mia who's a professor of economics at princeton and societies pay a price for prejudice that's something we also try to get across via the film pakistan has suffered tremendously because uh, the religious right is averse to knowledge uh, and given the day and age we live in we simply can't afford to just keep shooting ourselves in the foot uh, which is what pakistan seems to be doing well it also sounds like there are many more films that you will need to make on all these different aspects and uh, perhaps this is part of a larger tradition of uh, challenging extremist views and the establishment support to it and with that we'll uh, bring this uh, interview on a choppy line to karachi to uh, an end but we hope to have you on again sometime in the future thanks so much for joining us today thank you so much for having me and my profound apologies for my choppy connection my internet service provider is entirely to blame for it <laughs>